Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, welcome in. It's David Summers and it's another studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It is the story of wrestling in America as told by the stud whose family started the profession 100 years ago. So now we step back into the ring, back into time. We're going to get wall to wall and treetop tall into the great smoky mountains of tennessee with the tennessee stud ron fuller what's going on my man ron oh geez man beautiful day here wow they're supposed to get to 80 degrees today here man so uh i'm thinking i'm about putting on a bathing suit <laughs> give me a little sun. <laughs> all right you didn't have to tell us but you did Hey, listen, you know, we got some nice weather here in southeast Alabama, and it is warming up. But I, I understand that the, the folks up north are going to get an Arctic blast any time now. So anyway, we'll we'll take what we got. And listen, stud, Harley did it again and packed the house. That's an incredible reception from our fans, by the way, for studcast number 287 featuring NWA world champion, Harley race defending four straight nights in your two Southeastern territories in February of 1979. Last week was so much fun to just really take all of that in. Oh yeah, man. Uh, I, I really enjoyed it uh, just as much as the fans, maybe more, uh, you know, and it's, it's been great to hear from so many fans this week. And, uh, and it's kind of more proof to me that Harley was maybe the most respected NWA champion ever, man. Uh, the numbers that uh, I was able to track down and put together uh, the last week at the end of the show with the figures of those four nights uh, illustrated that fact, basically. That, you know, wow, he was really over. <laughs> the crowd sizes uh, for those four classic matches those nights, uh, the enthusiasm of the fans all told the story, man, of his following. It showed how much he meant, not only to Southeastern wrestling fans, but to millions worldwide. People took their time and made the effort to put down their hard-earned money to see him, man. And uh, mm -hmm. that's a real tribute to Harley uh, because uh, uh, I think he probably sold more tickets than maybe in the, any NWA champion in history. And the great thing about Harley, man, he acted as though he didn't realize how good he was, man, or how popular he was with fans. <laughs> you know, it, it, he didn't, it would, didn't phase him, man. So yeah. I'm sure he knew it, obviously, but uh, he kept his ego in check. And, boy, there ain't a lot of guys in the wrestling business can keep their ego in check. So, uh, you know, he did a great job of it. Uh, 
he was always in control of himself, man, and he earned that great respect from the fans that he got. Oh, he absolutely did. And when he talked, it wasn't just talk because he could also walk the walk. But listen, I got to say, I haven't figured out yet exactly what Studcast number 288, the title means, following the champion. So exactly, so where are we going with this, Stud? Well, the week following NWA champions matches, man, were it's kind of every booker's problem, man, all over the world. Uh, uh, so uh, how do you put together a card that was good enough the week after the champion was gone to follow him? Uh, how do you follow that act, basically, you know? So it was always a bit of a letdown for wrestlers because, obviously, their payoffs dropped quite a bit. They had these big week, and, uh, you know, the, everybody's money was up. Hardly got a big check. So did everybody else. And for the fans, it was uh, it was kind of a letdown, too. It was hard to follow it uh, because – the big match was over, man. The champion had been there. The deal was done. So uh, <laughs> every booker everywhere dealt with it, man, all across the world. Oh, all right. That's why I'm, I'm glad I brought that up. So I, I know we've never done this before, but you're talking about wrestlers being let down by the drop in their payoffs after big events and fans being let down by the NWA world title matches being over, and which is why I ask you to bring back those remarkable figures you ended the last studcast with for today's recording. So for fans that might have missed the last studcast, there's no better explanation of what you just said than those numbers. So would you would you hit them again? Yeah, man, I, you know, and and, uh, and I was wondering, uh, you know, uh, why you asked me about getting those numbers together, but I think it's a great idea, mm -hmm. you know, and I, and I did look them up again. And it definitely explains, man, the drop-offs and payoffs and fans' downers, man, after these huge events. So uh, let's talk a little bit about those figures again. I think I may add something to it this week as well. Uh, so this was the figures for the four events with Harley Race for the NWA World Championship in February of 1979. All four events sold out. Pensacola had 5,100 fans. Knoxville had 5,600. Montgomery had 5,000. Mobile had 10,200 for a total of 25,900 fans and four events. Uh, based in, bear in mind, too, a lot of these not just sold out, but when you sell out, you usually turn away people. And, uh, you know, they were turn away crowds in all four of these cities. So the gross ticket sales for these uh, 25,900 fans was $181,300. And that I looked it up is uh, that's equivalent to more than seven hundred thousand in today's money. Uh, Harley's payoff for the four nights was eighteen thousand mm -hmm. dollars. That was about eighteen thousand, eighty thousand. I'm sorry, eighty thousand dollars in today's money, man. Uh, a lot of bread there for yeah. four nights. Yeah. Uh, these figures, you know. These figures kind of also answer those fans that, that uh, you know, I've got fans that say, well, you know, the WWE is the biggest numbers ever, you know. Well, these figures answer those fans' questions, that bragging about how big WWE is or ever was mm -hmm. compared to the wrestling companies in the old days. Uh, this was just one smaller territory's production in just four days. Right. So, you know, we're talking about the tremendous crowds. And uh, so imagine, Dave, uh, the number of fans worldwide that attended events in more than 
30 NWA territories alone in 1979. Mm -hmm. We did this in four days. And there were 30 territories uh, (laughs) across the country and around the world. And each territory was having basically about 300 live events a year. All of them ran six days a week. Some of them ran seven days a week. So, you know, you had a minimum of 300 live events during that during that year, each territory. And that means that the NWA territories held 9,000 live events a year. Okay, you know, and, and each one of those live events, let's say each one of them drew only 3,000 people. You know, and you got a lot of these events held. Uh, Mobile was 10,200. You know, all these are above 5,000. So, uh, you know, let's just take a figure of like 3,000 fans at, for 9,000 events. That's 27 million of fans attended live events. And that was just in the NWA territories alone. That didn't include the stuff that was going on uh, up north uh, in the AWA and uh, and all the other independents around the world and, uh, and other countries. So imagine how many there were worldwide back in that time frame that were watching wrestling. Just really staggering numbers, no doubt about it, and an excellent comparison, too, to today's professional wrestling figures. So I think that that is going to help everybody see why weeks like the one in the last studcast were so difficult to follow. It also makes it easier, man, to see how difficult it was for a guy like Louis Tillette, who was the new booker down there in southeastern Gulf Coast, trying to follow Harley Race, man. And uh, <laughs> and uh, and besides Harley being gone, he was losing more talent that was still going to the Memphis Territory. So he had yeah. stepped into a real bad situation there. I felt sorry for him, man. Uh, yeah. And he was busting his butt. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit. We're going to touch on it at the end of the show today about uh, – how he was doing it, uh, finding these people, these well, new guys. Yeah, gotcha. Okay, I, th- I think we probably have everyone's attention with those numbers, Stud. So where do we where do we ride today? Where are we headed? Well, I just mentioned the southeastern Gulf Coast Territory, and uh, it's new. Uh, a very odd relationship with the Memphis Territory. I mean, we did have a relationship going on here, and it was one that we were sending them out, and they were accepting everybody we sent. So why don't we start there today, and uh, then we can cover the card of the week in the Gulf Coast Territory, the TV that promoted that card. We'll talk about the results of the Gulf Coast card of the week, and uh and we'll also give the attendances for the three major cities down there, like we normally do. And then we'll head north and take a look at southeastern Knoxville, and we'll talk about its card of the week, uh, the TV that promoted it there, results of the matches and attendance in Knoxville. And hopefully we'll have time for another learning tree question, since it's been two weeks without one day. We're not having, we're not having much luck at getting to learning trees, but uh, – We might be able to hopefully get one today. Yeah, that would be cool to work that in. All right. So, okay. So what are we going to focus on today that has to do with the Memphis territory? I think that's where you said we might start today. Yeah, man, that's a good place to begin. Uh, I already mentioned what Louis Tillette, the the Gulf Coast booker, was dealing with concerning the loss of talent to Memphis. And so let's take a look at the Memphis, Tennessee, Mid-South Coliseum card for the last Monday in February 1979. And we're talking about, we're going to cover a Southeastern Gulf Coast card. We're going to cover a Southeastern Knoxville card. We're going to give a, fans a take a look at the Memphis card. 
what they had on the last Monday in February 1979. Their opening match in Memphis was uh, Robert Gibson versus the Destroyer. The Destroyer was Bob Root with a mask on from the southeastern Knoxville Territory. The second match on that card was Danny Davis, who is going to be a future star in continental wrestling. He's going to be one of the great uh, nightmares, man. Great tag team. Uh, And Danny Davis was up against another wrestler from Knoxville, uh, Mike Stallings. The Assassins on the third match, uh, one of which was Randy Colley, who was the present partner of Don Carson. Uh, in the southeastern Gulf Coast territory. He was uh, wrestling with his former Gulf Coast partner, Roger Smith, who had been uh, the assassin team when we went there in 1978. So there's two assassin boys right there, and they were wrestling against Tommy Gilbert and Buzz Sawyer, who was another uh, uh, present Gulf Coast star at this point. Mm -hmm. Uh, Next match, Gorgeous George Jr., recently from southeastern himself, uh, wrestled against Jimmy Golden one half of the present Southeastern Gulf Coast Tag Champions. In the next match, it was a Southern Tag title match. Uh, Champions Bill Dundee and my brother Robert wrestled against Dennis Condry and another present Gulf Coast star, Don Carson. Then the next match was Bob Armstrong against the Mongolian Stomper. That's two Southeastern stars. Uh, you know, it's pretty amazing what's going on. And then the main event was for the Southeastern title that had Jerry Lawler, uh, who had won back the championship belt for me two days earlier, the Southern title belt. And he was wrestling toward Tanaka, who was a present Southeastern star. Yeah. So along the way, I was like, wait a minute, he's talking about Memphis, but it does sound like a Southeastern card, no doubt. All right. I count 15, at least 15 former or present wrestlers from the Southeastern Territories on that card? Well, that number happens to be correct, Dave. You know, uh, so it was a small wonder then why poor Louis Tillette was uh, having so much trouble filling the holes in Southeastern Gulf Coast uh, Territory. Four of the present top Gulf Coast wrestlers on this card that we're going to be talking about here in a second and, and down there in Mobile are going to be wrestling in the Memphis territory full time within the next two weeks after this card. So losing that much top talent that fast, that's hard for any booker anywhere in the world to replace that kind of movement and talent, especially right after the huge card with the NWA champion on it. Yeah, I I can see why Louis Tillette was so concerned, definitely. All right, so I think the next card after the Harley race world title card in Mobile, was on Wednesday, February 28th, 1979. So who was on that Southeastern card? Well, it was still a very good card, man. And uh, considering how decimated the card two weeks later that we're going to be getting to in the next couple of podcasts is compared to what we're going to talk about today. So still a very good card that they're getting on the last day of February in 1979 in Mobile. Uh, and, uh, you know, there was a, it featured some necessary business moves on that at that time uh, because of a loss of talent. We were having to really change things, not only with trying to pick up new guys, but having to move people around that was in the management. Uh, so the first match was an example of how the, those business moves I just talked about were. And it featured two new wrestlers, the two guys that had not been on any cards in Southeastern Gulf Coast. And one of them was Roy Lee Welch, 
uh, who was one of the southeastern Gulf Coast partners down there, and he'd been handling all the box office receipts. But since we were short on talent, you know, uh, he was now having to be put into the ring. He's got to go into the ring and uh, start to uh, do some wrestling as well. So uh, he was kind of bracing, uh, you know, uh, facing. He was facing one of those all-time greats, man. In in this next, in this first opening match, uh, a guy named Dick Steinborn, who fans are probably familiar with. He's been talked about a lot on Studcast, and uh, Dick was wearing a mask uh, down there, and he called himself the Gladiator. Uh, kind of same thing he did in Knoxville, in 1975 and 76. So. He was not just going there to wrestle. He was going to be moving to Montgomery to actually handle the publicity and to handle the box office in uh, Montgomery, Alabama. You know, and he's wearing a mask. A lot of people didn't realize that when they were dealing with him, that they were dealing with the gladiator, you know, and Mm -hmm. thank goodness that Mm -hmm. uh, we were able to be able to pull that off. You know, and he was an extremely talented wrestler, man. Not only that, he was a great television commentator, and uh, and he was a pretty darn sharp businessman uh, besides that. So, and then there was another new tag team uh, that was making their first appearance since early 1978. And uh, this is on this mobile card. Uh, Eddie Sullivan and Rip Tyler, who were both longtime top heels in the Gulf Coast, were returning. Uh, you know, uh, Louie had gotten in touch with both of them, uh, and they were going to be facing off in the second match on that card against Ricky Fields and Terry Latham uh, in a 30-minute time limit tag match. Uh, so uh, Herb Calvert, uh, who is making a big name for himself pretty quickly, was uh, doing that double duty again, man. He was challenging the crowd to try and beat him for the $500, and then he was going to take on uh, – Gulf Coast star, uh, Leon Baxter, man, the wrestling pro. So he's got a pretty big night. Mm-hmm. Uh, then the two big main events on that card, the Southeastern Tag Championship was on the line. A Texas death match, Jimmy Golden, Norvell Austin. They were defending their belts against the former champions, Don Carson and Assassin, managed by Billy Spears. And then the last match, the Southeastern Championship was at stake. And the loser of that match was going to have to leave the territory. And uh, that was new champion, David Schultz, defending his belt against Tony Charles. Hey, so, uh, yeah. And that was that card, by the way, nothing like the last card with Harley Race, but still a pretty good card. So what was the TV like that promoted just set up that whole card? It was loaded with video. Uh, you know, I, t- I think I said in the last studcast how many, how much video we were shooting, because we had these monster crowds. Every building was full, and it you made great video. And besides that, you know, it it really made the company look good. So it was loaded with video. This TV, and uh, it was shot the week before all of it in uh, different cities. Uh, down there in the southeastern Gulf Coast, we were in three different cities. So something was filmed in Pensacola. Some stuff was shot in Montgomery and some was shot in Mobile. So Golden and Norvell opened the TV, this TV show with Charlie at the set. And they watched their win over Don Carson in the Assassin on that Harley race cart. Uh, from the Wednesday night, uh, which was three days earlier before the TV, that yeah, was in Mobile. So this is a one match that's been filmed from Mobile. And uh, then they watched uh, the match where Billy Spears, uh, in this in, in the middle of this match, Billy Spears left his team. He was unhappy with how match was going before the match was over and went to the dressing room. <laughs> so uh, 
Billy Spears brought his team to the ring. He was his team, uh, Carson and uh, Assassin, were in that first TV match, and uh, and then uh, Charlie told me that uh, Billy came to the set, and uh, while his team is wrestling up there, they can't actually hear it, but he apologized to his team for leaving them in the video. You know, because the you know, Golden and Austin had showed the video, mm-hmm. so people had already seen the fact that he left the ring. And, uh, you know, he apologized and, uh, you know, for what had just happened. And he blamed his retreat, man, on having to use the bathroom at the worst possible time. <laughs> what? And it caused him his team to lose the match. <laughs> That's what Charlie told me. Are you kidding? <laughs> uh, did he, he really use that as an excuse on TV? It did, man. That's what he said. So first time I ever heard that one, man. So so then after his team won their their match and they came to the set with him, you know, (laughs) they were getting ready to do the first interview. And and Charlie said, Billy told his team, you know, he said the same story he just told him, you know, uh, while well, he says, while you're in the ring, I just told him what I'm, why, guys, I haven't told you here, but uh, I had to go to the bathroom. So, yeah. so, you know, Don Carson, man, he has always a pretty good sense of humor. So Don got very upset about it. And he said to Billy, he said, uh, you know, Billy, if you have that problem again, he said, I should, you, he said, you should tell us before you leave. <laughs> before you left the room, he said, "If you'll tell us before you go, he said, we'll both slap the slap it out of you, and you won't have to go." <laughs> <laughs> and the studio crowd popped. And Charlie said, "Wow, they love that line." <laughs> uh, Ron, excuse me, I have to have a comfort break. Um, okay. <laughs> That's crazy. All right, so I bet the crowd really enjoyed uh, enjoyed that one. I've always said Don Carson should have been a comedian. Uh, back then, he he would have worked. Well, I don't know if he would have worked today or not. All right, so what, what was next? Well, the new gladiator, Dick Steinborn, under the mask, had a great TV match. Uh, then it was first time on TV, according to Charlie's match was great. Steinborn was a tremendous wrestler, man, and a great heel. Uh, the personality profile featured the newcomer, Herb Calvert, and he watched a collage of uh, like f- his first six wins over fans that accepted his challenge from the crowds. So we had shot all of his wins so far, and then we pieced them together in a little short collage. And uh, and then he pushed his persona man as a heel by making uh, all making fun of all the weak competitors. <laughs> he said something like that to Charlie, you know, that he'd been dealing with since his arrival. And Charlie said, he said, surely there's tougher men in this part of the country than those that I've been facing, he said. And he said, you know, I've been thinking about raising my bet from $500 to 1000 And he said, maybe then I could, if there's any real men out there, maybe they'll get out of their seats and come on down to the ring and try me. <laughs> right. Well, that's a pretty good little deal there, man. So uh, then uh, Ricky Fields and Terry Latham, uh, they joined Charlie at the set, and they watched one of their huge wins over the massive Samoan team, man. Uh, And that match came from uh, Montgomery, Alabama, and it was on that Harley race card. Showed a building just sold out to the walls, and 
And then it was a very impressive win. Gosh, those Samoans were huge. And Ricky and Terry were about half the size of those guys, it seemed like. And, uh, and then they stayed at the set with Charlie. And they watched and made comments on the next TV match. And that was uh, with uh, Eddie Sullivan and Rip Tyler, who had just come back, just <laughs> arrived. And, uh, and Jesus, uh, Eddie and uh, Rip, they, they, they sure tore the heck out of their opponents, Charlie said. He said, wow, they looked like they'd been teamed for years. So the show closed with Tony Charles at the set with Charlie. And, uh, and he watched some of the fantastic highlights of his recent Pensacola match, world championship match against Harley Race. It didn't show the end of the match. It didn't show uh, Harley actually beating him. But it really showed a lot of spectacular throws that Tony Charles put on Harley. Stuff I'm sure that Harley was, wasn't prepared for. Mm -hmm. I don't know if he'd had a lot of English matches with people in Europe, but uh, yeah. wow, uh, Tony hit him with some good stuff. Then that TV closed with Southeastern Championship match on TV. It was the last Saturday of the February uh, rating period. Uh, you know, we wanted to boost the ratings. Mm -hmm. And Charlie said David Schultz, man, was absolutely brutal in his win, man. He told me, he said, gosh, Ronnie's looking more ferocious every match, man. It's like he's going nuts out there. He's wow. hurting guys every time he wrestles them. Wow. All right. So there was obviously a change of the guard, per se, a change of the Gulf Coast crew going on. But the TV seemed to be staying really solid, kind of holding its own. Overall, were you happy with how Louis Tillette's booking at this point how it was going and what after what had happened, I guess you would say, at the matches in Mobile after this TV ran four days earlier? Yeah, yeah, and I was happy, man, at what Louis was doing there as a booker, uh, especially considering what was happening with uh, so many Gulf Coast stars disappearing so fast. Uh, he was replacing them with pretty good talent. Uh, you know, you got Eddie Sullivan, you got Rip Tyler, uh, you got Ricky Fields and Terry Latham, and uh, more importantly, uh, he replaced them with names and faces that were familiar to the fans in that area. And that part of it was critical because it normally took you sometimes uh, months to get new faces over to where they started drawing money. But many of these replacements had real successful history down there. So that fact alone kept the bottom line from falling out during this time. You know, uh, there was being so many guys were leaving, but he was bringing back guys that were somewhat familiar to the fans, and that 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 was important. So let's talk about the results of that Mobile, Alabama card on February 28, 1979. Uh, Dick Steinborn, uh, under the Masters of Gladiator, got his first win in Mobile over, over my cousin, uh, Roy Lee Welch. And then all four of the next wrestlers, uh, were some of those familiar ones that I just referred to just a minute ago. Ricky Fields and Terry Latham wrestled uh, to a really good 30-minute uh, 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 time limit draw with Rip Tyler and Eddie Sullivan. And fans didn't see a lot of draws in tag matches. And, uh, and uh, I heard that this was a great match. And they're going to be returning in the next week, but it'll uh, our time limit's going to be in store for the next one. So we're going to find out uh, how long these guys are going to go if they're going to have another time limit draw. Uh, Herb Calvert 
uh, beat two more spectators from the audience. It's mobile. It ain't just one coming. It's two sometimes. <laughs> and I think this is the second week in a row that he beat two people out of the audience. Huh. And then he wrestled the pro to a 30-minute time limit drop. Wow. So it was the first time Calvert hadn't won a match since his arrival. He'd won everything he'd been in the ring for. And uh, he couldn't beat the pro in that 30 minutes. But the pro was pretty big talent. And uh, very underestimated, I think, in uh, in wrestling. Yeah. Uh, the Southeastern Tag Championship match uh, with Texas Death Rules that was won by the champions Jimmy Golden, Norvell Austin. They beat Don Carson and the Assassin, managed by Billy Spears. Uh, but Billy Spears got involved after the match was over, and then he, instead of doing it to maybe get his team to win. Uh, he hit Golden with some something, and it opened Jimmy up, man. And Jimmy bled like crazy. Uh, from the guys that told me, man, they, I think he probably ended up with a few stitches out of that deal. And then Southeastern champion uh, David Schultz, you know, he's scheduled to defend his belt in the next match, the loser leave town match. He came down during the end of this deal. Uh, Billy Spears has got Jimmy bleeding, and uh, they're beating, uh, they're taking care of Norvell Austin and. Uh, you know, um, and then this, when Schultz got down there, he attacked Austin. He took Austin off to the side, and then the three of them went to work on Jimmy, who was already bleeding. So uh, Tony Charles standing back there, uh, you know, uh, wasn't supposed to be match time, but uh, he saw what was going on, and he came down to the ring, and, wow, they had a wild fight at the end of that tag match, and it that fight continued right on into the introduction of the Southeastern Championship match. Schultz is down there, uh, you know, uh, and, and uh, uh, so is Charles. So, you know, why not go ahead and start that match? And uh, so they rang the bell, and uh, David Schultz won uh, with, again, with the help of Billy Spears, who was having a big night, man. He'd already <laughs> popped Jimmy. Now he comes down and he pops uh, Tony Charles. And, uh, you know, uh, and and he and he got he got the he got his uh, comeuppance for it. He got himself into a riot, man. It's in Mobile, right? So he's been there twice. That's twice too many times. And, uh, so you know the the Tony Charles. Uh, it, it it ended Tony Charles' great run there. He had had a tremendous run since we came in there in March of 1978, and uh, and Tony Charles. One of those guys going to Memphis. And the very next week, he's going to be in the Memphis territory. I swear that's got to be in a song somewhere. I've been there twice, and that's twice too many times. All right, so it sounds like a wild night in Mobile with another Southeastern star headed north. So what was the attendance? How'd you do? Well, there was, there. you know, this is where the title of this stud cast kind of comes into play, following the champion. Uh, you know, the the Harley race night one week earlier had 10,200 fans. Well, this week's event dropped to 4,200. Uh, you know, uh, that's a pretty substantial drop. Uh, Pensacola uh, fell from 5,100 with Harley to 3,500. Uh, Montgomery dropped from 5,000 to 3,200. So, uh, no, no, I don't think there's any description that explains the following the champion challenge better than the drop in attendance like that, man, after the Harley Knights. Uh, you know, champion championship nights, the three of them down there, uh, drew uh, 20,300 people. And the week after, we drew 10,900. Wow. Those figures, that's incredible. That's shocking. So, they certainly do 
make that follow the cha- following the champion title that I asked about earlier for this studcast a little more clear. So I see more of what you're talking about. Okay, for real, a great first half stud with so much going on. We are going north to hear what was happening there, and we're going to do that when we come back after the break on this studcast. Stay with us. It's the hottest new thing on the internet. YouTube, Southeastern Rewinds, Short Rides with the Stud. Short classic wrestling highlights from the classic ContinentalWrestling.com streaming channel. See the first Hulk versus Andre encounter. Bob Armstrong's heel turn with Ric Flair on Ron Fuller. Mongolian Stomper highlights. Continental TV cage matches. Mick Foley's star of the sport. Hulk Hogan's first TV match. Wendell Cooley versus Adrian Street. Dutch Mantel and Ron Bass Golf Coast TV versus Rip Tyler and Cowboy Bob Kelly and many more. A new one every other day. YouTube Southeastern Rewind, the gateway to classic continental wrestling.com streaming channel. All right, Studcast fans, welcome back in. David Summers with the Tennessee Stud, and it's another Studcast. We're back into the second half. So we are riding north into Tennessee and the Knoxville card on Sunday. February 25th, 1979, in the Chilhowee Park, Jacobs Building. All right, Ron, set it up for us. Who all was on that one? Well, man, we're, we're out, of the, out of the Coliseum. Uh, first time in, uh, geez, in 1979, just about. I think it is the very first time in that year so far. So on this uh, card in Chilhowee Park, the first match featured two new wrestlers to Southeastern. Uh, we had two new wrestlers, obviously, in uh, Mobile. And now we got two new ones on the first match in Southeastern in Knoxville. Uh, Tony Russo was going to be against a Japanese star who was fresh from the WWF in New York, man. He just came straight from New York to us. And uh, I'm talking about a uh, very talented uh, Japanese wrestler, Mr. Fuji. Uh, big star. Uh, Terry Gibbs was in the second match against Ron Wright. Bob Armstrong and Dick Slater squared off against Crusher Blackwell and the Invader. Uh, Bob Orton Jr., that's who the Invader was, obviously, under a mask. Uh, <laughs> the next match was another tag match, and this one was for the Southeastern Tag Belts. Uh, Lucas, Ken Lucas, and Kevin Sullivan were getting their first shot at the new tag champions, Bob Roop and Bob Orton Jr., who had won those belts uh, two weeks earlier in the tournament. Uh, the main event was for the Southeastern Championship. It was a Russian torture match uh, for the belt. Ronnie Garvin was defending. Uh, he was going to be seconded by Dick Slater against uh, the great Malenko, who was going to be seconded by Bob Orton Jr. Okay, so that's a really good card, but only five matches and in Chilhowee Park instead of the Coliseum. So why was that stud? Well, you know, it wasn't by accident, actually. You know, uh, I knew Harley was coming three months before he got there. Mm-hmm. You know, you always got to notice, uh, you know, when you're going to get the champion. And it was usually three to six months ahead. It gave you time to prepare. So, uh, you know, and I knew he was coming. And I also knew that uh, that big championship card was going to be hard to follow, man, like the title of this uh, stud cast, you know, hard to follow the champion. So I intentionally booked this event uh, to go back into Chihuahua Park rather than to come back in the Coliseum because I expected it to be a much smaller crowd, you know, and so I put it into a smaller building. It's going to make it look uh, really good. 
And I was prepared basically for for big drop off in attendance. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I was correct. <laughs> you know, it happened. Uh, you know, uh, it had happened in southeastern Gulf Coast, and and I knew it was going to happen there in uh, Knoxville and in that territory as well. All right. So, what about the TV that promoted that car that set all this up? Had to be a big one. Yeah. Well, it opened with Ronnie Garvin, man, and he was sitting at the set with Les. Uh, there was a a huge, you know, big set background. The entire set behind him uh, was a still shot. Uh, and uh, in this still shot, the referee was laying on his face in the ring. Uh, Garvin was standing on the top rope, about to jump off and hardly raise his throat. And uh, Les asked Ronnie what was about to happen. And uh, Garvin said he was about to win the NWA world title, Les. I was about to win the championship. And he said, uh, roll it, roll it, and we'll show what happened. So the director rolled the video, and it showed Garvin. Uh, jump off of there, man. And it wasn't like jumping out of the studio lights. It was uh, 200 feet to the lights there. But uh, he really got high in the air, man. And he came down in Harley's throat. Uh, and uh, then he covered Harley. And then it showed the uh, great Malenko, man, enter the ring. Uh, he had his chain with him, man. And uh, he slammed his chain across the back of Garvin's head. Garvin had the champion covered and he never saw it coming and Jane smacked him in the back of the head. And, uh, and then, uh, Malenko just, uh, rolled Garvin off him and he put Har- Harley on top of him and he went over and got the referee and drug him over to where they was laying. And then, uh, you know, he, uh, he left the ring. So, uh, the referee counted Gar- Garvin out, uh, you know, he raised Harley's hand and Harley got up staggering and, you know, I don't know if he, he even knew he had won, he'd saved his belt, and then he gave the belt to Harley, and then Harley got out of the ring. And as soon as he left the ring, the video was still running, and you could see he got off the apron of the ring into a mob of fans because Malenko had been trapped there. Wow. After he got mm-hmm. out with his chain, mm-hmm. he couldn't go. The fans all came to the ring, man. They were oh. upset about it, right? They were mm-hmm. mad about it. So – uh so, you know, go, Garvin kind of took it from there. You know, people had seen what had happened. And he told us, he said, he said, I went right straight back to the dressing room. And he said, I demanded a match of any kind. He said, I don't care what kind of match it is with the Russian, with Malenko he's talking about. And he said, because he cost me the world championship. So um, Les said, Don Curtis, Southeastern Commissioner, uh, got to see the video two days after the match. And uh, he said, Ronnie, he's awarded you a match. And, uh, you know, you know, he said a match just like you demanded. Uh, you said any kind you wanted, any kind that you could get. And he said, because he had said that, Ronnie, he said, Malenko uh, chose to have an, an extremely dangerous Russian chain torture match. Hmm. And, and he said, Ronnie, you're going to have to put up your belt. And the government said, I don't care. You know, he, you know what he what he had to do. I don't care what kind of match it was, and I still don't care. He said, "All I want to do is get even, and I want to leave that Russian laying like he left me." And then he stormed off the set to a big round of applause from the studio audience. They loved Ronnie Garvin in that part of the country. Uh, Les finished the opening uh, by saying, "The great Malenko." was going to be on the personality profile in the show, later in the show, and he was going to explain to everybody exactly what a Russian torture match was. And uh, then he threw it to the ring announcer, Phil Rainey. 
And uh, so then the first body that came out for that TV match was the great Malenko. And well, as you can imagine, the studio went crazy, man. They, and uh, his heat, man, after Costin Garvin, the world title match, you know, uh, the, the Sunday before, uh, boy, he was red hot. He, he really had some. He had heat before he cost Garvin the title. Now he was really hated. And then, and then he added to it, man. He de demolished. We put it instead of giving him an easy opponent, we put Charlie Cook in there, and he demolished Charlie Cook. Wow, it was it, it was terrible <laughs> how bad he just uh, he just really went after Cook. Mm. And then Ken Lucas, Kevin Sullivan got the studio back on track, man. Uh, you know they had been they'd seen nothing but nasty stuff, and uh, they got themselves another win, and they followed that by interviews with Bob Roop and uh, and Orton Jr. about their upcoming Southeastern Tag Title match, and uh, then Malenko showed up on the profile, but he showed up with Bob Orton Jr. and he explained how the Russian torture match worked. You know, and uh, you know, and then the Russian chain match. Uh, you know, he, he explained the difference between the torture match and the Russian chain match. That the Russian chain match required you to drag your opponent around the ring and touch all four turnbuckles twice before you actually won the match. And he said the Russian torture match uh, required you to hang your opponent with the chain in any corner mm. and beat him until he submitted. <laughs> I mean, wow. Just uh, right away, everybody, I'm sure, went, oh, my God. So, and, then, and then he says, but it also requires another wrestler to be a second to each of the, com the, the competitors, right? And he says, their job is to bring out a towel. And then they're there to wipe the blood from, from the guy's face oh, after wow. he's been hung in the corner. If he doesn't quit, you know, if he doesn't yeah. give up, they can come in and wipe the blood off his face and get back out on the floor. And he said, and also, he says, the reason that the towel is there, he says, if the if they decide that the man has gotten so much punishment that he's not going to uh, uh, give up and he's not going to submit, he says they can throw the towel in the ring, and that means that they're giving up for the they guy. They can throw it in. Yep. <laughs> throw in the towel. <laughs> yeah. So Bob Orton Jr. was the second for Malenko, and, and uh, Dick Slater is going to be the second for Ronnie Garvin. Uh, wow, <laughs> what a what a what a the, what a horrible thing this is going to be. Yeah, the Russian torture match option I'm not so fond of uh, for me personally, uh, but it could just be a me thing. All right, so really, either one of those matches sounded absolutely brutal. I can't imagine being in something crazy like that. So, what was next, Ud? Well, Crusher Blackwell and Invader, man, and they were going up. Uh, this is a TV match. So they were going to be against Bob Armstrong, Dick Slater the next day uh, in the Lowey Park, uh, Jason Jacobs building. And uh, they were facing off against two very unlucky opponents, man. Anybody who was against these guys were unlucky. And, and Blackwell, as usual, man, did all the work. Gordon let, made, him, made him start the match. He wouldn't tag in. He just made it go back and go back and go back. And, uh, you know, uh, so uh, that's the way it had been. With, when, when he teamed, anytime Blackwell teamed with Orton or Roop or Malenko, uh, they treated him like a, like a stepchild, you know. And uh, 
And after leaving both men laying, which Blackwell was forced to do, man, uh, then he went over and uh, he was forced to tag Invader. He covered one of them, and the invader said, no, get up, get up, come here, tag me. And then Orton went in, you know, to uh, to, uh, to make the pin. And uh, while he was making the pin behind his back, he didn't notice, but Blackwell pinned the other guy. The other opponents lay in there. <laughs> so, you know, uh, then the invader, that's Orton, you know, and he's got the hood on in this match, you know. He got right in Blackwell's face, and uh, Blackwell, you know, he'd taken a lot of stuff from these guys, from these three guys. So, uh, you know, he shoved him. For the first time, Blackwell stood up for himself, and he shoved him backwards. And when he did, Bob Roop, standing there watching the match by the dressing room door over there in the studio, he charged into the ring, man, and he got in Blackwell's face. Hmm. Now, there's Blackwell's a 450-pound man. I mean, he's a man. Yeah. So, so he, so he shoved Roop, and about the time he shoved Roop, the invader was getting up, and he shoved Roop, and he went back into the invader, and both of them went down. <laughs> and then Malenko came flying in the ring, and he got into Blackwell's face, and and you could hear him screaming so loud, he was saying something to the big man about. He says, uh, you know. Uh, you know, you know what's you know what's going to happen here, man. To somebody special, you better straighten up, right? And uh, so, Blackwell left the ring. You know, they got three guys in there now. What's he going to do, right? right so, right. so he right. left the ring, and all three of them jumped right out and following him, man. And they didn't see what happened in the dressing room, but. There's a problem there, obviously. Yeah, what was going on here, Stud? So, I mean, it's been happening a lot, it seems like. So, I'm beginning to start feeling a little bit for Crusher. I don't know, is there a turn coming? But, uh, th- yeah, they're they're trying to outman this guy. But at 450 pounds, is that possible? I don't know. I'll tell you, man, uh, all the fans, man, were beginning to wonder kind of what was going on. And uh, Blackwell, man, since the day he had arrived, he was always doing more wrestling in the ring than the other these other three guys were. Uh, carrying the load. <laughs> carrying the load, yeah. In more ways than that, one. He was a, actually a really good wrestler. You know, yeah. that's what yeah. I was impressed with. Uh, this guy's really good, man. He was he he wasn't meant to be with these guys. So and he was amazing for his size. I tell you what, I saw him. I saw him in one match one night, and I just I could not believe it. 450 pounds, I saw him stand flat-footed and drop kick a wrestler that was taller than six feet right in the face with both feet. God, God. 450 pounds. Wow. I was like, son of a gun, did he really do what I saw him do? Yeah, that's that's crazy. At four hundred and fifty pounds, no doubt. And I, I remember seeing this guy wrestle, and he was not just a big man. He he had some skills. He really did. Yeah. Oh yeah. He was really good. He goes on to the uh, the AWA up there with the Vern Gagne and uh, Bockwinkle and all those guys. Yeah. He becomes a huge star. Man, in the AWA. Yeah. He was a phenomenal man. Fans loved what he could do in the ring. And they were starting basically on their own to turn him babyface. You know, even though he was associated with three heels since mm-hmm. the day he got there, mm-hmm. they 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 say, you know, what's what's the deal? So everybody's going kind of what's the deal? So and he's got a great story, man. And 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 we're gonna reveal that story soon, man. And it's when it 
the story comes out of what's going on here, it's going to put tremendous heat on Rue Porton and Malenko. Uh, it sounds like it. All right, you guys were so far ahead of other territories with stuff like this. So I, I can't wait to, to hear how this is going to end. So what was happening on the last TV match? Well, man, who else you think was on there but Ronnie Garvin, man. And uh-huh. uh, when Garvin came to the ring, he brought old crazy Dick Slater with him, man. It was going to be his second in this Russian torture match. It was coming up, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the following Sunday. And uh, so the next day, actually, you know. So yeah. uh, so yeah. after Garvin uh, dropped another knee uh, off the top rope for another win, uh, they both went to the set together and they made interviews. And their interviews were great, man, and kind of set the stage, man, for – this wild event that's going to take place the next day in which you're going to be choked and, and tied into a turnbuckle with a chain and, <laughs> and beat till you can't. Oh, wow. Just crazy, crazy stuff, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, only a Russian could come up with that. Yeah, that, you're, you're talking about that Russian torture match option. Okay. That's another awesome TV right there. So what about the results of the matches the very next day that you were referring to? Well, Mr. Fuji, man, he made what I, I, I knew was going to be a great impression. Wow. And he got his first win over a newcomer named Tony Russo. Uh, and he looked really, really good. Uh, Ron Wright beat Terry Gibbs. Uh, Crusher Blackwell and the Invader lost to Dick Slater and Bob Armstrong by countout. And the way that happened is, they both got into this big argument on the floor and they forgot the, t- the referees up there counting them out. And they both got counted out down there arguing back and forth. Right. So uh, they're still having a big problem. Blackwell and all these all these uh, the other three guys. And, uh, so but they both got counted out and Slater and Armstrong won the match. But uh, it wasn't for a belt or anything like that, uh, but it was a win and probably a very easy one. And you'll win a lot of them like that. Uh, then Bob Roop and Bob Orton Jr., they held on uh, for a 30-minute time limit draw. Uh, they were the Southeastern Tag Champions. They were defending against Ken Lucas and Kevin Sullivan, great team. And uh, so they were going to be coming back the following Sunday in a 60-minute time limit the following week. And uh, the main event, <laughs> well, to say the least, was a shocker, man. I mean, uh, both Garvin and Malenko, well, they were bloody within probably the first five minutes of the match. You don't have caged, you know, chain matches without uh, both guys bleeding. You know, and uh, they, they got wiped off uh, several times by their seconds. They came in the ring and wiped the blood off and left the ring again. And uh, then Orton and Slater uh, many times, uh, you know, Got in and out of the ring to do that. And then Garvin was finally tied in the corner by the chain. And uh, he refused to submit. And Slater uh, refused to throw in the towel to stop the match. He wasn't going to throw in the towel. And uh, so Orton, who was the second for Malenko, came around the ring and got Slater's attention. And uh, when Slater went for him, Bob Root came down, sneaked up behind Slater, who didn't know he was there. And they hit him in the back of the head, and uh, he hit him with something. And uh, the referee was trying to get Orton back to his corner, and Roop scooped Slater up and gave him a shoulder breaker, man, on the concrete. I'd never seen that before. That's a horrible move anyway, and to do it outside on the concrete. And, uh, and then he grabbed Slater's towel that he had been into the ring with a couple of times, and he threw it up in the ring. 
which that basically meant uh, calling for the end of the match, and he ran back to the dressing room. Well, the referee never even saw Root come down, and when he turned around, there's no Slater anymore, but the towel's laying in the middle of the ring. He just assumed that, that you know, this is the end of the match. You know, he threw in the towel and he left or whatever. Mm. So uh, that was the end of the match, uh, and the referee uh, saw saw the towel laying there, and, uh, you know, so he – he, he had him ring the bell, and uh, he raised raised Malenko's hand, and Malenko obviously got the belt. Uh, there was a championship match, mm. so uh, and uh, yeah, that didn't make the fans very happy. I, I can tell you that. Well, okay, so I guess you would say that's a pretty smart finish, but I bet the fan, I bet you're right. The fans were probably pretty angry w- with that one, Stud. So how about the attendance? Well, they certainly were angry, man. You know, it was the first time Garvin had not been a Southeastern champion in almost three months. He was really in control as being a big baby face there. And, wow, anytime he lost, but to lose like that, that made it even worse, I guess. So uh, Dick Slater was 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 really hurt. And uh, the stretcher came down. They brought a stretcher down, and he was stretchered out. He wasn't going to be back for two months. He was going to be gone for a while. Uh, he did, you know, he, he was actually going to Japan and he missed Japan, but one week in Japan, because, uh, you know, that shoulder breaker was a dangerous move and, uh, you know, giving it to somebody out on the concrete really made it worse. So, uh, Garvin was going to get a return match for the belt the next week and it's going to be in the steel cage and it's going to be back in the Coliseum. Okay, so it's really been another great stud cast so far, Ron. You may not have followed the NWA champions crowds, but it definitely sounds like the quality of the matches following them. I think I think we've got time. Let's do it. Let's get to a learning tree question and let's get an answer this time. Bobby Lambert says, quote, Harley Race was the best NWA world champion ever, in my opinion. How many times did you wrestle him for the NWA world title? How many were one hour time limit draws or broadways, as you call it? How many were not for the title? And which one was the best match in your opinion? That is a loaded question right there. Let's get to it. Oh, gosh, I guess it is, man. There's several questions. Indeed. You know, so... uh, well, you know, I think a lot of fans, man, consider Harley to be the best NWA world champion ever. That's, uh, you know, and and uh, so to the best of my memory, and I think the man's name, the gentleman here, Lambert, to the best of my memory, Mr. Lambert, uh, uh, I wrestled Harley 13 times. Uh, Twelve of those were for the NWA title. Twelve out of the 13 matches. And all of those matches were one-hour time limit matches. Uh, and we went Broadway 60-minute uh, time limit matches 10 times out of that 12. So, you know, spent a lot of hours in the ring with Harley Race. And uh, one of those 10 times was in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And we wrestled to a one-hour draw there. And then I asked for five more minutes uh, after the match was over. And I'd done that a couple of times in the Harley race matches when the fans had seen an hour of it mm-hmm. and you just about got him beat. You know, you're stupid to not say, hey, give me five more minutes. And right? he allows that? 
Well, here's the deal. Now, he had done it a bunch of times. He had never accepted it. But in Tuscaloosa, he said, okay, I'm going to give you five more minutes. Wow. Right? Wow. So, so, so uh, you know, and, and obviously I, I didn't beat him. I'd, I'd been wearing the belt and everybody had known me as a world champion if I'd have won it. So I couldn't beat him in that extra five minutes. But I just about did about four or five times and – you know, I just couldn't quite keep him there for the three count. So uh, I do, however, consider that many of those one-hour matches uh, without a winner, it, it definitely made me a pretty good opponent for him, man. I mean, I don't know how many guys wrestled him to a one-hour draw, but uh, that's quite a number of hours to be spending in the ring with one guy. And I think, Mr. Lambert, you, you know, I'm trying to think about – you ask about uh, any matches with Harley – that weren't for the title. And uh, we only had one match that wasn't for the title. Mm -hmm. And it was a Texas death match. It was in Knoxville, Tennessee. And and I think your last question was, uh, which match was the best match, in in my opinion, of all the matches that I ever had with Arlie? And, uh, and I would have to say, out of all 13 of the times that I wrestled Harley, uh, it was that one that wasn't for the belt. It, and because that one in Knoxville was a Texas death match. Right. Wow. I believe that was my favorite, my favorite match with Harley. Uh, and, and one, and the reason, I guess the big reason is because what happened on the end of that match. And he did something on the end of that match that I don't think ever happened before or after in the history of the sport. And uh, we were both bleeding. It's a Texas death match uh, throughout most of the match. And it was probably, it went probably 20 falls. You know, you got the three count and uh, then you had the rest period, 30 second rest period. And then you had a 10 count to get to your feet after that. It probably lasted 20 falls. The last fall of the match happened on the outside of the ring. And, uh, there was a wooden portable table uh, that sat at ringside, right up to, next to the ring. It had a bell usually on it. Uh, that's where the bell was kept to ring the bell. And it always had some papers on it uh, because the timekeeper sat there and so did the announcer. And that uh, portable table was butted right up against the ring, right next to one of the ring posts. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so we fought, man. We got outside, and somehow we ended up on top of that table, standing up on the table. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I kicked the bell off into the floor and uh, off in the con off to the concrete. And and uh, when I turned back, he picked me up and he slammed me on the table. Both of us standing on the table. And uh, so uh, then uh, when he slammed me on the table, you know, uh, he went back in the ring. He climbed up to the top rope. Uh, using the turnbuckles, uh, you know, that connected to the post uh, and the way the rings were made. And uh, after he had slammed me, my head was kind of laying in the middle of the table. My legs were hanging off the end of the table. I'm pretty tall anyway, and, uh, and, the, and I ended up uh, with my head kind of in the center of the table. And uh, so now he's up on the top rope, and he, he straightened his, up his body, and, uh, and he put his hands down by his side. And then he came diving head first off that top rope. Now he was right, aimed right, his head was aimed right from my head. And I rolled off the table at the last second and he went head first through that wooden table. God. And then it broke in two and it collapsed in the middle 
where his head went, and uh, both ends of the table raised up off the floor so that his body was completely gone inside the table. All you could see was his feet and his wrestling shoes sticking out the top, straight up in the air. Wow. Right? You know, so I rolled back in the ring. The referee began the 10 count, uh, giving him, you know, the 10, 10 count to get back into the ring. Well, he never moved. <laughs> you know, after the 10 count, uh, you know, the referee signaled. They rang the bell. There was a 30-second count there. And uh, and then uh, uh, he started uh, the 10 count, uh, and he still never moved. His feet still were sticking out of the top of the table. And at the end of the 30-second count, uh, the referee counted the last 10 count, rang the bell, and uh, and he raised my hand, man. Uh, and I'd finally beaten Harley Race, man, <laughs> which was, you know, <laughs> I guess that's why I say it's my favorite. So then the fans just rushed the ring. It was amazing. It was like, you know, like a football field or the or a basketball game where you've just won a huge game. Everybody came rushing to the ring. Wow. And when I got out on the apron, people just picked me up, put me on their shoulders, and they carried me back to the big black curtain in the back of the Coliseum. Right. <laughs> And uh, wow. so when they set me down at the back of the Coliseum, I couldn't help, man. I had to look. I turned around to see if he was still there. And I, all I saw was his feet still sticking out of that table. God. <laughs> he was still selling for you, dude. Wow. <laughs> it was unreal. I'd never seen anything like it. Wow. It was pretty cool. Along the way in the course of those, did you say 13 matches? Yeah, 13 matches. Where where was this? What number was this along the way? Oh, geez, I think this was probably, I would say, maybe uh, the 10th one. You know, it was yeah. toward yeah. the end. I had wrestled him in Knoxville probably uh, at least three times, maybe four. And this one uh, wasn't going to be, he wouldn't put the title up. And uh, yeah. so we yeah. did a Texas death match. So I think wow. it was the last one of the Knoxville matches I had with him was this Texas death match. But it, but, to, but to me, it just says he had so much respect for you that in so many matches that you had already done with him and the, the private moments and the payoff, the respect that you showed every time he came to town. Because when he came to town, it was similar to Andre the Giant coming to town. And so he knew that he was going to be treated uh, the way a champion should be treated when when he was going to be dealing with you or your family. So I think that's cool. That's that, a good point. Yeah. That's a good point, Dave. It yeah. probably is true, too. Uh, you know, Harley had a lot of respect. Uh, I think he had a lot of respect for me. I had a tremendous amount of respect for him. There were very many people on the face of this earth. He yeah. he had that old saying, he's the baddest man on God's green yeah. earth. And, oh, my God. And I kind of believed he is true. That was a true fact. Oh, my God. And for him, for you to look back, and he's still selling it. He's still laying. <laughs> that's incredible. That is a, that, to me. That's one of the greatest wrestling stories I've ever heard. Stud, you have done it again. These studcasts are absolutely awesome. So it's so fun to follow follow along with what's happening and get caught up in it as I do. Hey, folks on Facebook, go to Ron Fuller Welch, the Tennessee Stud. Like and follow him there to become a friend with a living legend, a man who's been in the ring. 13 times 
with the one and only Harley Harley Rays. On Twitter, same thing. Find him on Twitter, Ron Fuller Welch, and follow him there as well. His YouTube channel is Southeastern Rewind. Ask the Stud 2, great question and answer show, is now up, and fans absolutely love it on YouTube. Subscribe now to see the extremely popular new short rides with the Stud, exclusively on YouTube as well. A new one every other day gives you a look into the tremendous streaming channel. ClassicContinentalWrestling.com is the streaming channel where you find everything that is the Tennessee Stud. There are now more than 150 hours of classic old-school TV shows from Gulf Coast to Southeastern to Continental to USA Wrestling, all in the order in which they were recorded. 17 chapters of Ron's audio version of his best-selling lion novel, Brutus, are now there too. Six stars of the sport, four superstars of the past, Wendell Cooley, Mongolian Stomper, Dirty White Boy Documentaries, and so much more. All, all of that is only $4.99 per month or $39.99 per year, plus the free one-week trial is still available. ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. It is the best deal in wrestling. All right, stud, I don't know how you top it, but you're going to try. I know you. So where do we ride next week? Well, man, I'm thinking in southeastern Knoxville, uh, we're going to start uh, into the month of, month of March, 1979. Uh, Dick Slater, like I said, has gone to Japan. Uh, Bob Armstrong is uh, picking up the slack, and he's working quite a few shows in southeastern Gulf Coast territory down there. Uh, Garvin and Malenko are going to go at it again, man. This time it's going to be in a steel cage. I don't know if there's going to be as much blood as there was in that torture match, but uh, it uh, it it's going to be a great one, uh, and that's going to be for the Southeastern Championship. And at this point, that's who the champion is, the great Malenko. He's now the champion. So, uh, plus there's going to be other great matches. Uh, we'll talk about the TV that promotes that card. Uh, we'll talk about the results of the card and the attendance. And uh, Plus, uh, we'll have a little more discussion of the upcoming war of 1979. Uh, we'll talk about uh, the action that, uh, that that's going on there and what's happening. Uh, keep you abreast of uh, all of that stuff. Then we're going to ride into the Gulf Coast Territory. Uh, we got uh, two more stars that are headed for Memphis, and that's going to be after a very unusual cage match where both members of a losing team, I don't know if this has been done either, both members of the losing team had to leave the territory. Usually it's the guy that lost leaves, but if your team lost, both you're gone. So Bob Armstrong, that was a big match. Jimmy Golden and uh, and, uh, Norvell Austin against uh, Don Carson and the Assassin, man. So then Bob Armstrong was going to take on uh, David Schultz. He'll be back down there in southeastern Gulf Coast. He'll be wrestling him for the southeastern title. And then we're going to begin the journey of southeastern's most famous wrestler, man. Hmm. Uh, history uh, was about to be made down there, southeastern Gulf Coast. Booker Louis Tillette was making his first contact with a guy named Terry Bolia, the future Hulk Hogan. <laughs> a young wrestler is going to become one of the biggest stars in the history of the sport. So we're going to begin that Hulk Hogan saga, too. Wow. So wow. hopefully, and then we'll get to another learning tree question after that, Dave. First time we ever heard of that dude named Hulk Hogan, uh, Terry, whatever his name was at the time. 
I was watching Channel 4 TV, and it was your show, no doubt about it. These studcasts are just getting better and better. It sounds like the next one, stud, is pure wrestling history. Well, I want to thank everybody, as always, uh, Dave, for finding us again, you know, uh, and uh, we, we should be uh, out there. Uh, hopefully, people know how to find us anymore, tnstud.com. And, you know, you can go and watch it on YouTube at Southeastern Rewind. Uh, it's available, our podcast, on uh, all the podcast outlets out there. So uh, really thank you for finding us again. And please tell your friends and neighbors about us. Uh, take care of yourselves and others. And may God bless us all. For Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains, I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at davidsummersproductions at gmail.com. This studcast is a David Summers production for Tennessee Stud, LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.